Today's scripture comes from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. The word of God for the people of God. So here we are, a week after Easter. Last week we heard about Mary and John and Simon Peter seeing the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene herself seeing the risen Christ face to face and then going to tell the rest of the disciples what she has seen. Now a week later, do we still believe in the the resurrected Christ? Are we still basking in the good news of Easter or are we locked in a room together, surrounded by others who, like us, are bewildered and unsure? It was a week after the first Easter. Though some of the disciples had seen and all had heard that Jesus was raised from the dead, they were hiding out behind locked doors unsure of what was going on, doubting that what they heard from Mary and from John and from Peter, doubting that that was actually true. Luckily for them, the risen Jesus transcends past locked doors. He comes and stands among them. He says, peace be with you. And then he holds up his hands and he shows them all the holes in his hands inside, the fresh wounds on his body. After they saw Jesus, 
He breathed the Holy Spirit on them. And and, and some scholars say that this is a a small Pentecost, a pre-Pentecost, if you will. And he sends them out into all the world to do ministry. What a profound experience that these bewildered and beleaguered disciples had. But one of them was missing. Thomas. Thomas was missing. Perhaps he was running late. Maybe he was enjoying a cup of coffee somewhere. Maybe it was his week to do the grocery shopping, and so he was out and about picking up bread and wine and whatever else needed to be done. Whatever it was that Thomas was doing, his absence in that moment cemented him with a nickname that followed him for the next 2,000 years, Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas. Now, nicknames can be difficult to overcome. Once one latches onto you, once you're saddled with a nickname, it can be hard to lose. I read about a child psychologist who gives a threefold strategy to children that have a nickname they don't like. One is, if you're brave enough, just ask for them to stop. The other is, just ignore the nickname or embrace it. As someone who has had their share of bad nicknames prescribed to them, I can assure you that each of these methods works okay most of the time to some degree or another. But unfortunately for Thomas, he's not around to ask us to stop. He's not around to ask us to to keep going, to embrace this moniker or to ignore it. And throughout all of history, not just church history, but all of history, Sunday school teachers, preachers, and parishioners alike all know Thomas by the name Doubting Thomas. I find this so interesting that this is the nickname we've chosen to give to Thomas because in the scripture reading today, the word doubt appears just once and even then, it only appears in the English translation. The word doubt isn't around in the Greek translation. I find it interesting we give Thomas the doubter Because elsewhere in scripture, we hear that Peter, we call the rock, denied three times. It's written. We don't call Peter the denier. Instead, we give him the title, the rock, the foundation that the church is built on, something unshakable. And yet he denied, but he somehow dodged that nickname. Of course, there's John, the gospel we've been going through. John's called the beloved disciple. If you're going to pick a nickname, you should give yourself the one whom Jesus loves. That's a good nickname that's self-prescribed. But we don't call John the fastest runner. Last week in the Easter service, we heard that John outran Simon Peter to get there, and, and we don't give him that nickname. We could even prescribe different nicknames to Thomas in the way that he interacted throughout John. We could call him Courageous Thomas, because in John chapter 11, he's the only disciple who believes in Jesus' power enough to say, let me go and die with him, when Jesus claims to be the resurrection and the life, but we don't call Thomas Courageous. I guess we could call Thomas Theological, because in chapter 14, he asks the question to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way to the Father. Show us the way to the Father, to which Jesus replies, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Anyone who knows me knows the Father. John gives us Thomas here asking this question to point us in the direction of how to follow, 
to follow the way. But we don't call Thomas theological. We don't call him wise, even though he wrote an entire gospel that the Catholics still use and that Rob quoted last week in his sermon. We don't call him giving, even though he traveled the rest of his life in India as a missionary until he died. No, we call him doubting Thomas. Thomas the doubter is what we saddle him with. We say this because he says, well, unless I see, unless I touch, I'm not going to believe. And we look at Thomas and we give him this nickname, the doubter, and we sneer it at anyone who doesn't believe. Because we assume if we had been there and our friends had told us about our teacher being raised from the dead, that it would have been easier for us to believe. Since moving here, I've picked up a new hobby. I enjoy fly fishing now. Not very good, but I enjoy it. It's something my wife Hannah can say, just, just go and, and mess around with that. I need some time. A good friend of mine just gave me a new rod and reel, and so I've been taking it out to different streams around my house in the old fort area. And I've begun to have similar experiences. It's almost as if there's a pattern to how it goes. I, I show up to a particular bend in this creek, and there's another fisherman there, and we have the same conversation, as if we rehearsed it. I walk up, I say, well, how's it been? They look, well, it's been pretty good. Right before you got here, I I caught a rainbow trout that was this big. (laughs) Or I I threw a fly over this direction and I I pulled in two browns. You're gonna love it, you should fish right here. And then I go about fishing that same area. And when I don't so much as see a trout, move below the surface of that glassy water, I begin to doubt. I begin to doubt what my fellow fisherman had to say in the tales that he told me. Now, I I heard the words that he said, but I never experienced what he experienced. I never saw what he saw. I never touched what he touched. The famous theologian Paul Tillich describes reality as that which we come up against, that which we bump up against. All the other disciples got to see, touch, and talk to Jesus. They came up against the risen Lord. Then they turned around and expected Thomas to believe on their word alone, and they're surprised when he doesn't. I find their surprise to be kind of humorous. It's as if they forgot that at the beginning of that week, what Mary had said to them on Easter morning. Maybe they didn't forget what Mary had to say, that she had seen the risen Lord. Maybe they doubted what Mary said that Easter morning. So their surprise to me seems interesting. Perhaps we give Thomas the nickname, the doubter, because he can take on all of our fear, all of our anxiety, and all of the doubt that we experience. We can just prescribe it on to Thomas. That way we get to pretend that we are less human than Thomas or the other disciples, that we require less proof or less convincing. But Thomas, I think, should be heralded as courageous because he stands up and looks at his friends and demands proof. He does what all of us want to do, but we fear that if we express any concern about the presence of God, if we express any doubt, that we might be ridiculed by our friends, left out of our church, or worse, called a doubter. 
Thomas has the same impulse we all have when something seems too good to be true. He just has the courage to say it. Remember what Rob said last week. Resurrection is not natural. We can't explain it away like we would plant a bulb in the ground and see it grow up to a flower. It's not normal for someone to be raised from the dead. It's not normal for that same person to be able to pass through a locked door. It's not normal for them to stand before you with holes in their hands and their side, wounds still fresh. Thomas then, I assert, wasn't doubting Jesus' resurrection or even his friend's words. Thomas was just asking the questions that all of us would ask. Thomas knew that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Chapter 14 told us that. Thomas was ready to follow Jesus unto death. Chapter 11 told us that. It's clear that he believed. But all of this that day seemed too good to be true. He wanted proof that the man, the friend, the teacher, the one he had followed for three or four years was the one that was there. Because if it was, that's the one he needs to follow on the way to the Father. Luckily for Thomas, he gets a, a redo. A week later, Thomas is sitting with the rest of the disciples. I assume after the first time, he tried not to go too far outside the bounds of the room just in case. And it is again that the risen Lord appears behind a closed door. Isn't it interesting that the other disciples got to see, got to touch, got to hear, were commissioned to go out, and yet here they still sit behind a closed door. So Jesus walks up, he walks straight to Thomas, he says, here you go, you wanted to see the scars, go ahead, right here, you can touch them if you'd like. But Thomas does not have to touch. He looks into the face of his risen teacher and gives the strongest statement of who Jesus is found in the entire Gospel of John and found anywhere in the Gospels. He looks upon Jesus and proclaims, my Lord and my God. When Gandhi was serving alongside the Congress in India, he has already done the famous salt march. He's become a folk hero. He's now working to, to help in the political office. He had a young aide burst in. He walked right up to Gandhi, looked him in the face, and says, Have you no integrity? Two weeks ago, you said this, and now today, you've helped create a policy that does the exact opposite. Where does your hypocrisy come from? It is said that Gandhi sat back in his chair, pushed those famous round-rimmed glasses up onto his nose, and said, It's simple, my son. You see, I have learned something since two weeks ago. Doubt does not equal disbelief. The desire for concrete answers and proof does not mean you're less of a believer. And when faced with something new, when faced with the real way, truth, and life, it's only fair, it's only fair that your response would be different from a week prior because you've learned something. Jesus then looks at Thomas and says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. I can't believe that this was a quote only directed at Thomas because remember Mary has seen Jesus, told the disciples about this encounter, they did not believe. And then Jesus appears and parts the Holy Spirit and yet here 
they still sit. But when Jesus asks this question, Thomas is the only one that has the answer on his lips. The Holy Spirit breathed on him. He breathes back, my Lord and my God. The fact of the matter is, is that faith is something that is ever-changing. New proof is always coming to life. Like Gandhi, like the disciples, like Thomas, we're constantly being confronted with new proof, new life experiences, new truth, new reality. Faith, as the preacher Fred Craddock puts it, is not a decision made once, but a decision made anew in every situation. Faith is not a decision made once, but a decision made anew in every situation. Sometimes faith looks like the courageous act of changing your mind. Sometimes faith looks like seeing and believing, and sometimes faith looks like believing all along. And sometimes it looks like the strange warming of a heart. Oh, church, in this life, we will encounter many people who will ask us tough questions that, that make us wrestle with our faith. Questions like, why do you believe in all that? Don't you know that this is all fake? Aren't you smart enough? Aren't you educated enough to believe in something else? Where is your proof? Luckily for us and for the disciples and for all the world we serve, we have a God that is so close to us as the air that we breathe. Sometimes our wor words will not bring people to belief. No matter how well we write a story, we won't be able to convince all the skeptics. Sometimes our own curiosity or natural circumstances will prevent us and others from believing until we actually see it for ourselves. So the only way to show ourselves and others, to show them in the flesh, the true living body of Christ is to be the body of Christ, to act with so much love, so much compassion, to go behind locked doors to the places where we're not always welcome, to show them the wounded scars of our lives and how they've been used in us to transform us, to show them the Holy Spirit that was breathed into all of humanity before time existed to show that we can love all people without exception because Christ first loved us to show them the way, the truth, and the life that is found in Christ Jesus. So it's a week after Easter. We've heard the news that Jesus was raised from the dead for the salvation of all the world. Do we believe? Maybe not yet fully. Maybe we're still looking. Maybe we're still searching, hoping we'll catch a small glimpse of this risen Christ. Catch a glimpse maybe in a mountain spring or in a good shepherd, in the face of the child at the baptismal font or at the blowing of the wind, so that we can boldly exclaim with all the company of heaven, my Lord and my God. Amen.